following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Well, gentlemen, good morning. It's nice to see you again. It's been a little bit of a while, but I'm looking forward to our lesson today. I don't know if you guys have heard about this particular lady who had a little bit of a challenge in her hands, but Vicky's husband was missing. So she went to the local police uh, office and with her next door neighbor, Dorothy Pauline, who was with her, and wanted to report her husband missing. So the police obviously asked her for a description of the missing man. And this is what Vicky said as she described her missing husband. And she said, he's 35 years old. Six feet, four inches tall, has dark eyes, dark wavy hair, an athletic build, weighs 185 pounds. He's softly spoken and fabulous with children. The problem, of course, with that description is her next-door neighbor who and good friend who knows her husband really well was shocked. And so she broke in and says, well, no, Vicky, your, your husband, he's, only, he's 50 years old. He's five foot, five inches tall, has horrible eczema. He's bald and has a big mouth and is horrid to your children. So Vicky sighs, uh, yeah, but who wants him back? <laughs> now there's every single one of us guys here. Maybe we have a tough time thinking of ourselves as reality would perceive us, but most of us don't see ourselves from the perspective that should be seen, and maybe that's with someone who knows us pretty well. There's a reality with all that, that most of us have this image of what we want to become or what a man's man is like, the kind of perfect fella that uh, Vicky was describing. And maybe we have sort of this false image of ourselves that, yeah, when it comes down to men measuring up, I don't do so badly. But it's not so much what we think positively of ourselves from that perspective, but the reality that maybe the image of what we think of a man's man that we want to become isn't even close to where we are. Well, let's do a little bit of a fun exercise here. And just by the show of applause and cheering, which of these men would you say, yeah, that's a man's man? So if you really like it, just get really enthusiastic. If it's a little bit on the low side, you could be a little quieter, at least polite. Let's go through these and see what this group of men here, what we think of as a man's man. Just go ahead and show your applause or to cheer. Okay, not bad for 6.30 in the morning. (laughs) Come on, guys. Yeah! 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 We're we're, we're not biased by any stretch here. And, of course, our final one. Now, if you're not here from Houston's First Baptist, this is our pastor. You don't... (laughs) 
You have no idea how long it took me to work on this picture. Smile. Yeah, I'm, I'm Pastor Greg's personal trainer. Dude, he's got crazy eyes. <laughs> we, we probably want to give a copy of this to Kelly sometime. There, there's, a, there's some amazing images of what it means to be a man in Scripture. And we could have some fun with it from the standpoint of these pictures, and we all have personal biases. But there's probably a secret desire in the lives of all of us that if we ever were the kinds of individuals who had the opportunity to have an amazing, an amazing interchange between us and Almighty God, and God would say to us, I want to give you anything that you want. I give you one opportunity to ask me for anything. And I, I know that you know that I will give it to you. And I also know that you know that I'm capable of giving it to you. If we had that one opportunity where God tapped us on the shoulder and looked at us eye to eye and said, I've got a special, special calling for you in your life. And I want you to do this for me. So whatever you need in order to accomplish that, you just ask and it will be done. I was uh, amazed during this last summer. I was having my personal devotions out of 1 Kings, and I was reading through Solomon's interaction and interchange with God, and he's famous for this. Most Christians who are somewhat familiar with the Bible are aware of what Solomon asked for and what God did as a result. But sometimes what we forget is the context in which this particular request was made. Why in the world God made him this offer? It wasn't just that God selected him out on out out random. It wasn't just that Solomon himself was somebody who just happened to walk into God's eyesight when God needed a man that he wanted to equip for something special. But he, he was somebody in the context of how he was living his life and the values that actually he already had employed in who he was as an individual and a follower of the Lord. God, out of that context, gave him this amazing request. So I'm not going to look at the whole life of Solomon with us this morning, but just this one particular episode that changed his entire life, changed the entire nation's trajectory, and changed the entire trajectory of human history as a result of this one man, this one request, and God's granting of this amazing favor at this particular juncture in his life. Here in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, this is what the Bible says. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. That's at Gibeah. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Now, I know that maybe for us, we kind of read past that really quickly, but for those of us who look at burnt offerings in the Old Testament and realize that one burnt offering was a massive expression of a personal expense, here Solomon's doing a thousand of these burnt offerings. One burnt offering was overwhelming for one single family. And that was a family that was pretty well off. They had provisions for families who were poor and middle class. But for the average family who could afford it, this amazing burnt sacrifice was something they did once a year. And that was an amazing personal family expense. Solomon as an individual did a thousand of these at one time because of his desire to worship God. 
And that particular junction, as you think about that and contemplate that, in verse 5 it says, At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon during a night dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give to you. Now we have to ask ourselves this particular question in light of the reality that we're not just studying the Bible to become scholars of ancient history out of an ancient text. We really want to know what God says miraculously in inspired scripture to make a difference in how my life today and the routine of my life will be because he is now a part of my routine. And I've, I've submitted him, submitted myself to him as a result. So if we look at a passage of scripture like this and ask ourselves, what in the world would we ask for if God gave us that tremendous privilege? The sacrifice is enormous from the standpoint of Solomon's preparation. And one of the things that we see in this particular passage of scripture is an amazing relationship of cause and effect. Because everyone knows about Solomon's request, but this was an amazing cause-effect relationship that God caused something to happen as a result of this amazing life that Solomon had been living so that the effect of this particular request stands before us and looms largely. Now, I want you to notice that in this passage of Scripture that we read, that the Bible refers to God by two different names. It says that the Lord came to Solomon, and then God said to him. So you hear the two names. First, God refers to himself as Lord. And if you see it in your English Bible, the Lord is spelled with all capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That always refers to his Hebrew name of Yahweh or Jehovah, the God who makes promises and keeps them. That God doesn't just give empty promises or try to cheer us on, give us his false hope, try to sound good for the moment. God doesn't do that. When God makes a promise or makes an offer, he will fulfill it. That's the integrity of his character. But then he changes the name, and when in the scripture when it refers to the Lord came, Yahweh came, the God of promise, the God who always keeps his promise, came to Solomon. And then it says, God said to Solomon. That's capital G, little o, little d. That's a name for God in Old Testament called Elohim. And that's a common name for God, but when you see it in the reference of the book of Genesis, it's the God who created everything out of nothing. God has the power to create anything that we could ever possibly imagine, just with a thought, just with a word, and it's there. Uh, we just had friends from Michigan ride their motorcycles down again for the second year in a row, but a different group of guys came down, old friends, came to visit us, and of course, uh, I took them out down to NASA. That's a great place to bring uh, non-Texans to the number one tourist spot in our state. And they were mesmerized. It was a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal display, it's a phenomenal exhibition. And I brought them into this area where they show the history of the space accomplishments. And you could be so overwhelmed with what you see at eye level, you might forget that the ceiling is really tall. And in the darkness of the room, you might miss it. But in the tall ceiling, they've got all the stars sparkling up there, twinkling. And they've got an amazing representation of the Gemini capsule on the first spacewalk, happening as an astronaut is up there in the ceiling floating along in darkness. And it's amazing to watch that in the backdrop, God created this amazing universe, the heavens, for us to do one thing, and that is to be amazed that God, who loves us, has that kind of power to create all of that. 
And we have to put Gemini, this space capsule with a man walking in space, which is a tremendous achievement for mankind. But when it's up there, to me, as a theologian, I'm remark- it's remarkable to me, the contrast. God spectacularly spoke in all these planets and stars and all these other, other heavenly features were suddenly there. And it takes man with his very best to create a capsule that'll just go up there and orbit the earth for a little bit and then come back down. But the contrast is amazing. But when God uses his name Elohim, that is a God who has done this. He can create out of nothing with just the spoken word. So here we have God whose character says, whatever I say to you, whatever promise I make, I will keep it. And I also want you to know that I come in my name as Elohim, that I could create out of nothing, just with a spoken word, whatever it is that I speak. Now, with that particular context, we have this tremendous sense that this God is now coming to Solomon and making this promise. Ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Now, this Solomon has been the kind of individual who has expressed tremendous generosity, limitless expression from his own resources, to just worship God through sacrifice. Here is a life of an individual in the context of this tremendous request. God, I want to worship you and let you know what you mean to me. Through my act of giving and worship, I want you to know this about me. So God reveals himself in the dream and says, whatever you want, I will give it to you. This is a reaction, not just something that God just did out of a vacuum, but the life of Solomon was expressing himself in worship to God with incredible generosity. Now, the phenomenal thing about this, of course, is when I look at Houston's First, where uh, Yvonne and I are members, and we have a wonderful pastor who keeps on cheering us on and saying, look at the generosity of Houston's First and what God is now going to be doing through our generosity to impact our city, our country, and the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That same phenomenon is the same thing we see here as a dynamic. The generosity of Solomon through the act of generous, genuine worship, God is now going to respond to and say, hey, you worship me like that? I want to give to you a reflection of my generosity into your life. Now, gentlemen, if we ever want to be a part of what God is going to be doing and be right in the middle of his overwhelming sense of impacting our city, our state, our country, our world. Let's use what we have now to express our worship to him. If that is an end in itself, praise be. That's sufficient. But if as a response to that expression of sacrifice and generosity, God may very well pick us to be a part of an amazing plan that he has to do something spectacular in this world. And it may begin with him giving to us an opportunity to make a request. If that comes, what would we ask for? In verse 6 of this chapter, Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Think carefully now about how Solomon reveals the values of his own heart in this expression. When God says, ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you, 
This was Solomon's introduction to his request. And in it, he reveals the values of his heart. Notice what those are. In framing this remarkable request for which Solomon is famous for, which we haven't even gotten to, this is the context by which this particular request was made. He acknowledges God's kindness to his father David. Solomon sees himself as a part of an extended legacy beyond his own life and generation. That is amazing. It wasn't just about Solomon. It's about what Solomon was now doing as he continued a legacy way beyond his own life. And so many of us are very myopic in just what my life is about, not where I've come from, not what my dad was all about, not what my spiritual legacy that was given to me is all about. Now, here's one great feature, and I know that this is true, that some of us are thinking, well, wait a minute now, I I didn't get any spiritual legacy from my dad. And when you think about that particular reaction and that thought that probably has formed in the minds of so many of us, maybe that's one of the great things that we as a group of men can turn around. That God is not just about the single generation that is alive, but about multiple generations. And one of the most phenomenal things about the Bible is it's always about third generation down the road. My children's children. It's not just about me and my life. It's about the generations that are going to come after me that I spiritually could impact. Not just those who are my peer generation, but the generations that follow after me. And still the question is being begged. Well, Bruce, is there anything left for me? I didn't have anything about that legacy. Yeah, I understand that, nor did I. My father was not a believer. But when I study this and contemplate that, and now see it again here in the life of Solomon in the context of his great request, my big prayer is, God, let me live so faithful for you that I could pass on a legacy to my children and to my grandchildren. If I'm not in the middle of this thing, if my grandfather never knew you, if my father never knew you, let me start this amazing legacy with my life so that you could bless my children and my children's children, to do whatever you want amazingly through the lives of these special individuals. Now, gentlemen, if you're here and you don't have a spiritual legacy from your dad on this earth, I understand that. I identify with that. But if you do, see yourself in the legacy of what your father or even maybe your grandfather passed down to you and watch what God could do in your life. Or start something for the generations to come. David's legacy of faithfulness, as now Solomon begins to identify exactly what it was that God blessed David's life for. Faithfulness is a part of God's great recognition of David's life, and Solomon acknowledged that. Solomon, the son of David, recognizes these three famous issues with regard to why His legacy as now a follower of Almighty God, Yahweh and Jehovah. These three things reigned supreme. Wasn't how much money he had. Wasn't his position. Wasn't his power and influence. It was not his power and influence. It was not his worldly wealth. But he recognized that he possessed something in the legacy of his dad in these three great qualities. Faithfulness. The ability to be loyal and devoted to the things of Almighty God. Righteous, to have a consistent track record of making right choices. Uprightness, 
the character to discern and to choose what would be pleasing and honoring to God. That's what those three terms mean. And Solomon recognized that those were the great features of the legacy that Almighty God passed on to him. That's the family legacy. And now God put Solomon on the same throne that his father David had. Solomon is expressing himself in an amazing way and recognizing this great sense of family legacy. Since I left you uh, earlier in the spring, uh, God has expanded our legacy, and, and, that, and I treasure it. I, I'm a grandfather, and I love it. So here, here on this picture, this is, this is our grandson over here. That's, that's Lucas. And I, and I get to sit there and read to him. Not very often, maybe once or twice a year when I make it all the way up to, to Portland, and I'm thinking, God, help me now to start this amazing generational legacy with my children and now with my grandchildren. And there's our granddaughter that was just born in June, the one with a furry cat. She's just a delightful little human being. And I'm amazed that as a grandparent, you could fall in love with a human being with whom? You've never had a, a, a decent conversation. And yet my loyalty and my love and my commitment is there. That three-generational feature to me is, is a treasure not just of being a grandparent, but a treasure that spiritually I want to say to God, please let me pass on to this generation and the next so that three generations down the road, the Fongs can make an impact in the kingdom of Almighty God for the namesake of Jesus Christ. In verses 7 and 8, Now, O Lord my God, and notice that Solomon was very careful to use both of the names of God. Today, we don't do that. Our prayers are very ambiguous in general when we refer to God by name. But notice how Solomon referred to God by those two names that God identified himself. Solomon was very bright. He was precise with that. Now, O Lord, the God Yahweh who makes promises and keeps them, my God Elohim, who has the power to create out of nothing, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. My father David, who is known for faithfulness, righteousness, and being upright. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Now, gentlemen, I don't know if you ever had this pointed out to you before, but as Solomon comes before God to answer what God has invited him to make a request about, he demonstrates a humility that's a genuine part of his spirit and soul. Humility for a man to recognize his place is not about arrogance or what I can accomplish or have you seen my latest copy of my resume, God? But the humility that comes with Solomon coming into the presence of God to make this request is unmistakable. We cannot miss his value of a spiritual legacy and his personal humility as it comes before God with this answer. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. I love this fact that Solomon, as bright as he was then, even though he wasn't going to be anywhere close to what he was going to be, still he's a very bright guy, and yet he comes before God with his attitude of a servant. 
Now, I know it's very chic for us today in Christian circles to talk about being a servant, but there's that old saying, it's popular to talk about being a servant until someone treats you like one. And here we have Solomon recognizing that before Almighty God, to bring up the term of servant. This is the God who can send him anywhere and ask him to do anything. And he's putting himself before God humbly that I am your servant and I'm uncertain in my youthfulness to have the confidence necessary to do what I need to do. So that humble spirit before Almighty God is absolutely phenomenal, admitting his youth. I can't do that anymore, I'm afraid. So I'm a little bit further down. At least I can escape that particular snare. Acknowledging his inexperience. Now there I might be able to lay some claim. He concerned as Israel's leader and judge. Now there I can grasp onto that with massive, massive intent. As I lead DTS Houston as their dean, I know that the heavy responsibility of much of what goes on in the strategic initiatives and the future vision of that institution falls squarely in the center of my plate. I know that. I feel that. Every night when I go to bed and my prayers are there, and every morning when I wake up and the first thoughts of my prayers are there, I know where the challenges are with our institution. So for me, for us, in the downturn of the Houston economy, we are feeling it. We've had the largest downturn in our enrollment at Houston, DTS Houston, that we've ever had in our history of 23 years. One large hit. I had to do all the explanation. Whenever things are going great, I give credit to the team. Whenever we feel institutionally a, a challenge, a hiccup, a major dip, I take all the responsibility. And I told our team, and I went up to Dallas, and I had to explain to our president and our vice president of academics what in the world's going down in Houston and why the numbers are the way they are. I gave a very good explanation. If you can't give a good reason, you give them a snow job. Just blow all the data from them. Think, man, this guy is really bright. I have no clue what he said, but boy, he must be really bright because he sounds like he understands it. And so we were praying and working as hard as we could to try to make enrollment initiative number one for us at DTS Houston. So everything was gearing up for this past Saturday when we had our open house in anticipation of our spring semester. And I asked our, I asked our admissions director, I said, so what's, what's the attendance look like on Saturday? He says, well, it looks a little low. He says, okay, I can appreciate that, but you've got to give me a number. He says, we have seven signed up. And I looked at that uh, number in my mind, and I'm thinking, here we're going to have 15 of our faculty and staff present. And only seven of these prospective students show up. That's going to be a little bit of an overkill. So at that moment, when you're instantly panicking in your spirit, you don't want your team to see it because you're the leader. It says, well, it's a matter of prayer because we want to see God help us impact the city or figure out what the world is going to do. And we were on the phone and shaking the trees and doing everything we could and praying and showed up on Saturday. First seven people came, but then they kept coming. Then we were up to 14. That was twice what had been anticipated. And I looked over at the people who were registering at the desk, and they just kind of shrugged their shoulders. They're coming. I said, keep registering them. We went in to get the, ready, the program ready, and I looked over at the, uh, the people who were registering people. They said, we're up to 21. 
And 21 to 24 is a really good number for spring. I mean, that's a really healthy number. I was so excited, I sent a text message to my boss up in Dallas. We had a promise of seven, and now we are up to 21. Praise God that he's made this a successful event. And then as the event kept on going, I'm thinking, I'm counting more than 21. So after my part was done, I went up to the people who were registering and says, how many did we end up with? They said 37. That was like a fourfold increase. Now, I don't care about fish, actually. I don't care about bread being multiplied. But when you talk about human beings being multiplied, who want to come to graduate school and seminary to prepare to impact the city of Houston for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am very, very excited. So I tell you, before a humble, before an almighty God, I know what it's like to be humble. God, I can't do this. I can't fix this, so you've got to do it for me. Specific request with regard to a discerning mind. He says, God, in light of all this, I would like to make judicial decisions. I'd like to have the ability to decide right and wrong among people who have challenges and difficulties that face me. The nation, Lord, is yours. And I want to lead them with the kind of wisdom that can only come from you. To come before God and say, I don't have the capacity, Lord, but I want to serve you and be your instrument in your hands. That's what I want to do. Well, one of the reasons why I left uh, Warrior's Heart to be off is I just have so much on my plate, not only running the school, but we also moved the entire campus, not just changed the building, not just rearranged the facility. We moved the entire campus to a new facility this last summer. Our students only had 50 parking spaces to share among them, 250 students. That's a little bit of a problem. Our library grew out of a space that was nothing more than a closet from about 7,000 volumes to now almost 20,000 volumes, and it was starting to cannibalize classrooms. We had to actually have personnel share office space flip-flop times because we didn't have enough office room. So we, we had an opportunity to take over the first, half, first floor, half of a first floor of a two-story office building. We had our architects come in, gut the whole place, redesign that specifically for our purpose. And not only did we have to do that this last summer, but we had to move everything across the street to this new facility. And in the process of all that, trying to oversee all that, and do the enrollment initiatives that we had to deal with, there was a church in spring that didn't have a pastor, and they needed an interim pastor, and I said, sure, I'll come and do that. So I went up there and preached every Sunday, and I went up there and had two days of office hours to encourage the people to pray with them and cheer them on. And to do all that and to do Warriors Hard and to do the other things I was doing here at Houston's First as a volunteer, I just couldn't do it. So I had to let go of some of those things in order to do those kinds of things. And now, this little church in spring, Faith Bible Church in spring, has a new pastor. And the people are so excited. And I was thrilled to turn it over to him. He was one of my students in the past. And now he's their pastor. What a thrill to watch these people get excited about him being there. And now that I've relinquished that responsibility at Faith Bible in spring... I'm now over at Fellowship Bible in Katy because their pastor just had brain surgery and the poor guy's got a massive hematoma on his brain and the doctors just don't know what the future is for him. I had a, had a moment to spend some time with him and say, hey, Don, how you doing? You could tell the guy was struggling. 
You can tell there's going to be a long period of time for him to, to be restored to where he was with his original vigor. And they still don't know the prognosis for his future. So I'm in there every Sunday preaching for him at that wonderful church. But when I look at these things, I say, Lord, look at I'm pooped. Lord, I, I, I just don't have the knowledge. I don't have that. So please, Lord, go before me. Let me do this in your name. And honestly, guys, when you feel like you're at the limit of your capacity and ability, and you go before God with the same kind of spirit that Solomon did, and you ask God to help you, God will do it. Just don't forget that after he does it through you, to thank him for what he's done. Don't just stand there, hey, man, I'm better than I thought. Take a bow, take a bow. Don't forget that the humility that we have before God isn't just when we're demanding and requesting and desperate for a request, but also at the end when we watch what he's done when we knew that we could not do it. So the scripture tells us here in verse 10, the famous part of of Solomon's request, the Lord was pleased, ah, wonderful, that Solomon had asked for this. So that demonstrative pronoun, the antecedent to that, goes back to his humble request in order to be wise and discerning. So, as a result of that, cause effect, God said to him, since you have asked for this, and not for the things that most of us men would ask for, and God reveals this very subtly, if God says to us, what do you want? Most of us would be thinking some of these things God knows. You do not ask for a long life or winning the lottery, (laughs) nor have asked for the death of your enemies, Oh, by the way, God, can you just kind of take this guy out while you're doing this? But for discernment and administering justice, the comparison and contrast of that particular passage of Scripture is absolutely stunning because it reveals what God wants from any of us who is a godly man and what he doesn't want from any of us who claim to be his followers. I will do what you will, what you have asked. Plain and simple. The exegesis of that, not hard. God's going to do what he, what we have asked or what Solomon's asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will be never, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, this is an amazing part. I will give you what you have not asked for. I'm going to take out those bad people. No, he didn't say that both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands, contingency, as David your father did, whom you know because you explained that legacy to me, I will also, in that sense, give you long life. That's an amazing passage of scripture, guys. And if you've not read that carefully, slowly, meditated over it, closed your Bible, thought it through, open it up and read it again, you ought to do that. The request for Solomon was granted, and it pleased the Lord and gave these amazing requests. Now, I know that from a practical standpoint, we are sitting here thinking to ourselves, well, that was Solomon. That was really amazing. I'm sure glad that happened to him. That was a long time ago, ancient history. But Solomon was invited by God to ask for a special request. And this is our reaction, but not us. Or maybe we're wrong. 
John 14, 14. Jesus says, You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Gentlemen, Jesus Christ spoke to his disciples, and by a tremendous application, no question, anyone who's a follower of Jesus in obedience can claim this promise. If we are so enamored and amazed with what happened to Solomon, but have never realized that God has come to us with the same offer, we are missing a huge component in how we should be living our lives for Jesus. And when I look at my life, I'm asking the Lord, what, what can you do, Lord? Help me make an impact in the lives of my children and my children's children. And Lord, I don't know how long I'm going to be living. If we, if, we, if we live for 70 years, that's a good deal. Well, I'm 63. If that works out for me, i got seven years left. That's not a long time. But if God's going to give me good grace, maybe I'll live as long as my father-in-law. He's 90. But my father, he didn't live that long. He only lived into his 70s. So that's my genetic deal. And my mom only lived into her 60s, and that's my genetic deal. So I'm asking God, how can I leave a legacy for my children and my children's children in such a way that when they're living their lives as adults and asking, Lord, what, what can I do? What can you do for me? And my grandfather, my dad, hopefully I have impacted them to such a way until I remember that. So I'm, I'm writing. So that maybe one of these days my kids can pick up some of the books I've written and some of the things I've gone through in life and done that. Here's, here's two of them. These are all going to come out by God's grace before the end of the year. This first one here, Take Another Step. It's, it's a book that talks about this life when you get knocked down, and everyone does. You'll have a horrible moment. There'll be a painful episode in your life, and you just don't want to get back up and take another step. But do it. Get back up, take another step. No you stand down there. Never, nothing gets accomplished when you're down on the ground. But there's a Chinese saying that the beginning of every great journey begins with the same thing, and that's the first step. But it's not just the first step. Don't just take that first step and stay still. Just the next step after that. Keep on going. And that's what this book is about. How do you start to pick up that momentum? As the sun comes up, the sun comes down. Amazing phenomenon. The other book here is Determined to Finish Well. And that's, that's because I'm a grandfather. I've been contemplating this a long time. How in the world do I impact the generations after me when God takes me home? Print is going to last longer than my life. That's really sad. But now these books are going to become electronic. Now that's really good. So I write not to impress people, not to be on the New York bestseller. These will never make it there. But maybe someday my children will say, you know, I was wondering what my dad was thinking. I picked up one of the books he wrote, and they started reading it, and maybe that will impact their life. My grandkids will enter into adulthood and say, you know, my grandfather, he was, he was a follower of Jesus and a servant of Jesus. I really wish I could have a conversation with him, but hey, maybe, maybe in his books. What are you doing to impact the next generation and the generation after that? With a simple request before Almighty God, can God you do something with my life as I humbly come before you and say, I can't do this on my own. I really need you to do it for me. What 
is your request. John 14, 14. Jesus made that promise. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. That's in the NIV 84 edition, the way I quoted it. John 14, 14. And in the English version, the NIV 84, 14 words. 14 words in John 14, 14. May that forever be a part of how you live your lives as men from this day forward. Have a great time at Table Talk, guys. Good to be Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Garden Room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day. Open your hearts and love.